Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 20% off your new account for six months, go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP10. This week on TWIP, the Olympus story continues to unfold, Getty gets a whiff of some pine-scented lawsuit, and the Thailand floods hinder production at Nikon, Sony, and more. It's Wednesday, October 26, 2011, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today on the show are Mr. Ron Brinkman, Sarah France, and Alex Lindsay. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. All right, Sarah, let's start with you. You have been away from TWIP for quite a while. We haven't talked to you. It feels like in forever. What have you been up to? I know you're traveling right now. What's up? Yeah, I'm in New York for Photo Plus um, and a mini WPPI that they're doing, which is really awesome. Um, I'm doing some speaking on the showroom floor at Sony, actually, doing some shooting stuff. So super stoked about that. And then, um, yeah, I mean, other than that, we have been really busy just, you know, obviously with the bag company, kind of getting stuff ready for Christmas. Um, Gobi Bags is doing some promotion and stuff with Adorama. So it's always good to connect with those guys here. So it's been really busy. Plus I'm like in the middle of my busy wedding season. So I was going to say all um, that, are you actually like <laughs> clicking the shutter at any point? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, a lot. I'm clicking the shutter a lot. I've got weddings kind of pretty much every weekend except for this weekend. And, um, we've just, the studio is like really slammed right now and kind of angry at me for being gone so much, but I love New York. So the energy of being in New York is really exciting. That's I love cool. it. But well, I gonna, apologize gonna... about my audio quality. Um, I tried to make a good microphone thing happen in New York, and um, it's just not happening. But That's all right. you can just visualize me in a cab or something. I was going to say, I don't, I don't really think they really have microphones in New York, so don't don't worry about it. You know, you'll <laughs> okay, be, good. Because <laughs> I was, yeah. You I know, California has a lock on that. So anyway, yeah, thank you, Sarah. I, you know, it's uh, we'll have to catch up with you to find out what your adventures at Photo Plus were like, and if you yeah. saw anything revolutionary or got to actually hold that new Canon, you know, I mean, just to see what you think about <laughs> yeah. it. Um, also yeah. on the show, Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron, Ooh, what's going on down there? And where are you? Hermosa Beach, right? Hermosa Beach, yeah. Oh, nothing new. Same old stuff. Nothing I can talk about not yet, at least. So, uh, <laughs> I stuff, love that's a that's a classic like Silicon yeah. Valley line. You know, it's, yeah, it's not really something I can it. talk about right now. Well, yeah, not exactly. because you can't, because there's nothing to talk about, right? <laughs> I neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> Yeah. You don't talk about unreleased products or services, right? Exactly. Even if they're only just things that we're thinking about. <laughs> what I'm up to is cleaning well, my garage, but I can't talk yes, about it. Nothing, nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, that voice you heard, Sultry Tones, was Mr. Alex Lindsay, also on the show. Hey, Alex. Hello. Hello. You've been, you're always busy. How, when are you not busy? When are you not like just, you're like a Tasmanian devil of the tech industry. <laughs> I have been, I have been scheduling some not busy time uh, in 2014. 
Oh, very good. Nice. So, yes. so, uh, so I have a weekend. I have a weekend of 2014. Very good. Good for you. Well, yeah, make it last. I'm planning to. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be four days. Four days? <laughs> where I'm just going to stare at a wall. You can rest when you're on your rocking chair sitting on the front porch with your kids, right? Exactly. There you go. All right. Lots of stuff to talk about um, this week in photography. Uh, the first thing is we wanted to update on that Olympus story. It continues to develop. Remember, I think <laughs> it, got, it got so much better over the last week. <laughs> it's just it like did. a script now. You know, I mean, like before, just to bring users up to or listeners up to speed. Um, Olympus fired its CEO and the CEO said, well, they brought me on because they wanted an outside perspective. And then the guys at Olympus, the Japanese company said, well, we fired him because he was too much of an outsider. <laughs> so, so now, uh, Alex, take us through what's going on now this, this week. And as the Olympus turns, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the issue is, so Michael Woodruff, who's the CEO, you know, he was abruptly fired, you know, it, and, uh, and it looks like he was about to, um, you know, tell federal employ- you know, federal uh, officials uh, that, uh, that there was a lot of uh, uh, accounting issues. Uh, basically, one point five billion dollars uh, possibly going the wrong direction. Specifically, what the FBI is really focusing on is six hundred and eighty-seven million dollars uh, paid to two Japanese bankers on Wall Street, and these guys just don't have the quite the background for that. And the story is it's about 30 times the normal uh, payout for, which still would have been good, 20-some million dollars, uh, but still um, but a little bit higher than what is normal, uh, even for Wall Street. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so anyway, um, it is a, uh, it's interesting that Walt Woodruff still says he wants to return to Olympus, uh, <laughs> to, you know, uh, to work for the employees and revive the, revive the government. I'm assuming that he is saying this. Uh, based on the idea that the entire management will be gone in two or three months. Yeah, or the <laughs> idea that Olympus somehow exists in a parallel universe and they don't know about all this mudslinging that's going on in this one. I don't, I don't see that Well, happening. it seems like, you know, in a lot of these industries, you know, things are getting squeezed pretty hard. And, it, you know, and, and we have to remember that for Olympus, the photo industry, Olympus could be still around. The photo uh, part of their market is the sexy part of their market, but it is not the largest part of their market. They have a lot of other... <laughs> not uh, anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it, it hasn't been for quite some time. I mean, yeah. it's really their biggest part is there's a lot of industrial uh, stuff that they do. Um, and medical that is, devices, yeah. Yeah, medical devices and so on and so forth. Yeah. That is actually a much bigger business for them. Um, the photography market is more of what, you know, that is the sexy part uh, that they like to show off. Uh, but it is definitely not the part that pays the bills. Yeah, Ron, yeah. Ron, I know you have an opinion on this. What, what's... Well, it, I mean, it is evolving because t- I mean, even today, the the president, uh, the, the president and CEO stepped down, resigned today. So it's it's still going. I mean, you know, this is it's really kind of crazy. They got between this and the meltdown over at uh, Netflix. There's you know some of these major companies that are just hammered. I mean, losing you know more than half of their value in the matter. Isn't that of crazy? Week. I mean, you you like look at like I drive by Netflix because they're in the area, right? I go oh. look at the beautiful campus they have and the giant sign. I'm like. These guys have their their stuff together. They know what they're doing. Yeah. And then, come on, Quickster. What's going on? They're down to about a third of their value, as is uh, as is Olympus, down to about a third of what they were at two three weeks ago. Yeah. So yeah. it's insane. I don't know. I uh, mean, it, it's it's sad because you know Olympus is, and along with Panasonic, are sort of the two champions of the micro four thirds. Uh, thing which I still believe is a is a nice thing to see a you know different companies sort of pushing a kind of an open ecosystem, and uh, that's my biggest concern is it's just gonna it's just gonna dump on that if, if one of the two major 
sort of backers of this goes away because I think there is a need for something that's not a completely closed and proprietary photographic system. I mean, there's it's, it's at least somewhat standardized. Yeah. Sarah, uh, Sarah, what do you think about this? Do you think, I mean, we're, it looks like from my perspective, which is admittedly an outsider's perspective, it looks like this just this is the beginning of an overall consolidation in the industry or or more of that. What do you think? Um, well, I think it's really interesting to see what's happening with them, but um, I don't think it's, it, I think it's too soon to tell almost, you know, like mm-hmm. what's going to shake out from it. But um, it, it sounds pretty scandalous, I won't lie. I mean, I, I think there's some definite differences going on within this company that um, are going to be looked into. And the whole like FBI is now investigating, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, right? uh, it doesn't really sound so great. So um, but our so industry needs some scandal, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's all this good, cool new gear coming out. It's all, you know, rainbows and unicorns. We need some dirty scandals, you know, and Olympus <laughs> is bringing that to the table. So thank you, Olympus. Well, I love yeah. the uh, I love the allegations now that you know, there, there may be organized crime. You know, Yakuza's uh, been taking over the company and filtrating <laughs> it. And, and uh, you know, I actually saw an article where somebody claimed that the behavior that Olympus went through recently in the last couple of years where they suddenly diversified and went into industries that are typically much more um, uh, infiltrated by organized crime. So that, I mean, this guy's making a lot of leaps of faith, but it's sort of like, what kind of a great story is behind all of this? You got to wonder if it's ever going to come out. Yeah. So, yeah. Soon we're, soon, soon we're going to... Go ahead. I was just going to say, soon we're going to find out that they have moved their manufacturing to Rapungi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rapungi is is notorious for that kind of activity, and as well as being a really cool club district in Tokyo. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Actually, I've never actually been in any of those clubs because I'm always kind of scared. But uh, I've been in one and or they, several, they, and they're not. Some of the best. It's we'll not it scary. It's just you're going to pay like forty five dollars for a shot of something. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not unless, it's, it's, unless you're working on the Japanese economy. And I wasn't at the time. I was on a military salary. You're not going to have fun in Rapungi. Yeah, they, they have one of the best noodle joints in all of Tokyo, though. So, which has no name because it's all in Japanese. I don't know what it is. It's just, yeah, it's just all in Japanese. It's <laughs> well, awesome. you know, hey, we'll we'll continue to monitor this story. Clearly, Olympus is, uh, you know, uh, evolving <laughs> yes. as it goes on. So, this will be interesting to follow. Uh, speaking of drama, Getty has lost a round in the uh, this trademark infringement case, and get this, this was against basically let's set the scene for this you're driving your car and you have one of those little tree pine tree shaped mm-hmm. air fresheners hanging from your rearview mirror um apparently that shape and color and all that is trademarked by a company called car freshener <laughs> so <laughs> so all these stock photographers out there were taking all these cool pictures and inadvertently including the car the air freshener in the photos and now getty is getting sued for the honor unauthorized use of that and uh they're losing apparently this this scares me a little bit i mean what you know what point do you have to worry about any recognizable trademarked uh, brand showing up in a photo you take it seems kind of crazy to me you know if, if you are providing a product that is in daily use sorry you guys <laughs> also I'm, in it. Awesome. I'm, just, I'm gonna disappear for a second sarah you had something to say you were interjecting what was <laughs> no good go ahead ron sarah's dog has opinions on this one <laughs> I don't even remember what I was saying. What was I saying? Uh, oh yeah, you were saying arf arf. 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 
you know, trademark materials showing up in your photos. I mean, you have to make sure that I mean, in today's world, you can't you know, swing a barking dog and not hit something that's got a trademark on it. So yeah. how much do you have to worry about something like this? Yeah, pretty soon you'll just be taking pictures of nature, you know, and, and yeah. someone may copyright that. Alex, what about you? I mean, what... what is is Ron right? I mean, we have to like every time we snap a picture, especially the stock photographers, look at every little piece in there. And if there's a logo, like you're taking a picture of a crowd scene in Times Square and on New Year's Eve, and someone has a jacket on that has a brand name on it. Of course, everyone will. Well, um, I mean, even more so. I mean, my my real question for you, Alex, would be: you know, you do a lot of sort of corporate videos and in, in scenarios where you don't have complete control over what's in the background. I mean, do you, do you see something where at some point they're going to be like you, you, you as the cinematographer have to be responsible for not uh, not getting anything in the frame that's trademarked? Well, I think that it depends on what we're shooting it for. Um, definitely, if it's shot for commercial purposes, we spend an enormous amount of time and energy making sure we avoid uh, logos uh, and and things that we think might be uh, copywritten, mm-hmm. and uh, which we you know is why we just don't shoot outside in France. You know, um, so. Uh, Seems like everything's copywritten in France. I mean, like everything's got a you know you can't shoot the Louvre, you can't shoot this, you can't shoot that, and um, but the uh, you know so the uh, I think that the you know we're seeing this going in both directions because I mean one of the other things of course we were in the same you know, connected to this story is a little bit of the whole Rihanna uh, David LaChapelle uh, suit where he says basically she derived her S and M video direct was di- directly derived from his pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that is, you know, when you start having this whole thing and this is the, you know, we're seeing copyright um, in every way, shape or form, whether it's what Apple's doing, it's what the car fresheners are doing, it's what photographers are doing in some cases. It's what, you know, uh, all of these things are starting to get blown into a into a world that, you know, is just going to shut everything down. And, and we're going to, you know, I think that we're getting to this point where it is going to become so insane that we are going to rewrite the laws. You know, right. it's, we're moving very quickly to a point where it is going to break because people are taking it too far. You know, they're just and, and people are going to, you know, and especially as these crazy ones win, um, you know, you're going to see more and more and more of this, uh, you know, this push is going to. And, and, and I do think it's good for the large Gettys of the world and others to start feeling the pain yeah. because they're the ones that have been pushing for all of, the, you know, the Hollywood and all these other folks. I don't know what Getty, but. Uh, a lot of you know when they start feeling that pain, um, it, you know it is a uh, it it means that they may start thinking about it because right now they're spending so much time trying to protect that that you know they haven't um, uh, you know that that it hasn't been you know that they haven't been looking at what happens when this goes too far and and our yeah. copyright laws don't make any sense our copyright laws our patent laws everything else they were they're not being used the way they were designed they've been totally no. manipulated they're totally screwed up yep. and eventually this whole thing is going to come to a grinding halt because culture will stop moving forward because you can't put anything on the internet Yep. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of. Uh, I mean, we had the discussion before about patent and the patent trolls, and you know how they're they're inhibiting innovation and all that. So, this is the same sort of thing, right? So, wh- like you, Alex, you say things are going to grind to a to a screeching halt. When is that going to happen? I mean, is oh, it? I, I, is I don't it know. Soon, I don't know. Or is it like in twenty years? Do I have twenty years of being in able to take ways, pictures? It, in some ways, it's already started to grind to a halt. You know, I mean, it's just like it, when you look at what you know, all the stuff that just die. You know, all the orphan works that just simply die. I mean, things that happen that because no one can find the person. The way it's all set up, I mean, everything is just a. 
it is it is just a mess, you know. And and so the thing is, is that um, it's already grinding to a halt. The question is when they're going to change the legislation. And the answer is probably not anytime soon because the only thing that they can talk about right now is the economy. <laughs> so so you know the you know so our, our our representatives are focused on things other than you know whether our ph- photography is being handled properly. But I mean, I, I just find it really hard to believe that car freshener can. Um, can prove any damages here yeah you know, sarah, that, you know. sarah france are you are you back on the line yeah okay quick question for you so you're you're our you know at least on this call our, our resident wedding expert right so yeah. when you're doing shots so even engagement shots shoots you know of like you're running around the downtown san diego with a bride and groom taking pictures um do you need to be cognizant of brands in in those shots or it doesn't matter because it's private use or how does that work yeah, no, oddly, I mean, I still need to be aware of it because um, I remember I was in New York and I shot a couple in front of the Apple um, sign in front of their, like, translucent, like, underground um, store. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, so proud of it. I thought it was so cool. And I shot it over to my friends at Apple and they were just like, that is super sweet. But, you know, you can't use that, right? <laughs> and I was just like, what? What do you mean? What are you talking about? So I, I think it's still like you still have to be aware of it. Like, but you're, you're special, though, because you, you have an agreement with Apple. You're like sponsored by them and your images appear in every Apple store on the planet. Right. So like what about the average Joe that's shooting a wedding for fifteen hundred dollars? You know, does he have to care about to have an Apple logo in his shots? I don't know. I think he kind of, I think it depends on how they're going to use the images. Like if they're using it for personal use and it's not ever going to be published anywhere, then then probably not going to need to worry about it. But most photographers are looking to get their weddings published. You know, they're trying to either get them published on a blog or get them published on, on in a magazine. So yeah. I guess it depends what level of photographer you are and where you intend to use the images because those images are fine for personal use for the client because they'll never really see the light of day. But I couldn't use them in my portfolio. I couldn't show them online. Like I really couldn't utilize them as much as I wanted to. So it doesn't hurt to like be careful of that usage. But yeah. I, I agree that at some point these things are going to have to change. Like there's going to have to be some molding. Like honestly, we're talking about like iPhone photos and like i mean just multitudes of images being shot everywhere in the city in the streets and it just can't keep going like this you know yeah ron brinkman what do you what do you think about all this i mean is are we heading towards a day when you know well we've got billions of people on the planet using apple devices let's just take that as an example with an iconic look and feel to these ipads and ipods does this mean that whenever you take a photo if it includes um one of those looking devices that you're infringing on apple's copyright i mean i think alex is right it's gonna break at some point we can't keep keep doing this but uh, you know the problem is as long as there's lawyers in the world there's gonna be uh People well, going back and forth on this. But I think the question is, is whether we get to a point where the music industry got, where people just stop it, just stop paying attention. Yeah. You know, where it gets yeah. so ubiquitous yeah. that maybe if you're in a big company, you can't do that, like Getty or whatever. But, you know, I think that, the, that you know, the, the absurdity of what the music industry was doing basically killed it because people just stopped caring. They stopped caring whether it was legal or not. They stopped caring whether it was, you know, and, and when everybody's doing it with their cell phones and everything else and they get to a point where it just doesn't matter anymore and it's everywhere... Um, you know, it becomes, uh, you know, it, 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 at that point, that might be what it looks like when it's broken. 
Yeah. 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 Well, well, we will continue to monitor this and other stories on this week in photo. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting and depressing at the same time. All right, guys, before we uh, move on to the next story, I'd like to take a quick moment to remind the audience about our Facebook page. You can join in on the conversation, submit your questions, your comments and more. And otherwise, just interact with us Um, and you can check it out at Facebook.com slash This Week in Photography. Looking forward to seeing you over there. All right. This next thing that I want to talk about is um, about a new fund that was set up to honor Chris Hondros. He's a photojournalist. He's a Getty photojournalist, and he was tragically killed in Libya earlier this year. Um, he was capturing images or capturing images of a conflict right up until his death. And the fund was set up in order to, uh, quote, support and advance the work of photojournalists who espouse the legacy and vision of Chris Honduras to or Hondros to uh, raise outstanding issues facing those um, reporting from conflict zones through fellowships, grant making, etc. So this is this is for those folks that are that are embedded in in the area, right? So you are you are in the zone. And what I wanted to bring up with this, so yeah, of course, help out with this fun. But in this era of cell phone journalism where every every person out there has, especially with these new iPhones, has a really good camera that they can take photos with. Does it make sense for professional photojournalists to still be heading out to these war zones when there are people already there with capable cameras? Ron, I want to throw it to you first. Does it, I mean, should, should people be putting themselves in harm's way to get the shot or should they just let crowdsourcing handle it for them? <laughs> I believe they should. I mean, not not necessarily in the way you phrase it. Should they be putting themselves in harm's way in the sense of that being their primary activity? <laughs> but, uh, you know, a, a good photojournalist is going to be able to get into places and get a story out that your average dude on the street may or may not be able to do. And, and you know, just like anything else, there is there are always room for professionals uh, in, any, in any sort of aspect of photography. Yeah. But having said that, I really do think that um, more and more we are going to see these scenarios where news agencies will just contract with local people, potentially contract with a multitude of local people, and that way they can just sort of choose the best out of, you know, it's, I mean, it's so much cheaper. You can probably hire 30, 40, 50 local photographers who these days have good equipment for the cost of flying, you know, a premium photojournalist out to some particular location. And at that point, you know, why not hire 20 of them, 30 of them, get them all covering it, and the coverage that you'll get is obviously very broad, and I don't know where that trade-off's going to be, but I think a lot of times you'll get very usable, useful stuff out of it. So I think it's going to change like anything else, and most of that is driven by the fact that between the good cameras that a lot of people can have around the world now and the ease and speed with which you can get that information back via the Internet, it's certainly going to change a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, what do you think about this? I mean, when when is good enough? okay? you know, in other words, like Ron was saying, you know, you want to have these professional photojournalists out there getting the story accurately. But now that now that everyone has a capable camera that can almost automate automatically take a good exposure and get a reasonably decent exposure or image of the scene, does it matter? Yeah. I think I think to some of the high, higher end uh, news organizations and higher end magazines, it's going to matter to have a professional shoot with a full you know full quality uh, and full uh, history and skill uh, that it takes to really capture the scene. So when you're looking yeah. at a National Geographic or you're looking at something like that, I definitely think that that is going to be still a realm that you're going to see uh, professional photography. On the other side of that, I do think that 
um, you know, I think one of the advantages of professional uh, photojournalists is, of course, they're coming in in, in a semi I would not say neutral stance, but a semi-neutral stance, uh, whereas a lot of people taking photos might be harshly on one side or the other, and really taking those, ca- taking those photos um, to move a, uh, a conversation forward. I would say that a lot of photojournalists do that, too. So it's, it's hard to say that that, that is, you know, and, and a lot of times the photojournalist, the professional photojournalist is oftentimes taking pictures that also um, tell a bigger story. Uh, you know, I know um, one of the, I've talked about this in the past, but you know, when I was in Harare uh, during the elections in 2000, which were a big deal, you know, they what I saw on CNN and what I was experiencing was completely different because mm. what they were looking for was a good story, and what I saw was nothing. <laughs> so, really, you know, it so was just you know, blowing the, the things out of proportion for, for well, they're they're, yeah. street, they're they're showing people dancing in the streets after the election and. I don't know where they saw that, but I had been driving through Harare <laughs> like the whole three day people around the corner dancing, right? <laughs> or the bars drinking beer, watching the TV, watching CNN, and you know, make it look like they were partying. You yeah, know, they were just kind of, yeah. you know, and, and it just wasn't that big of a deal, you know. And I mean, I, I think a lot of it was fear; they didn't want to go out there and do that, you know. But but the point was is that is that you know, um, I, so I think that there is a there's a, a a level of 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 realism and also access. I mean, when we hear about some of the videos um, that have been shot about around Gaddafi and Gaddafi's death. Yep. Um, those are things, you know, those are cell, cell and other, you know, basically cell phone video of stuff that you're not going to get unless you're right there. You know, yeah, and that's that. part of that's part of the question, though. I mean, you have a photojournalist that's out there embedded getting a story for a news organization like CNN or Time or, you know, someone out there. So they're engaged and they need to get something that's emotionally you know, that pulls at the tar- the heartstrings. But cell phone journalists, conversely, that are out there just snapping, happy snapping away, just kind of documenting, well, and, arguably would get a more realistic slice of what's actually happening, right? Well, and, and if anyone's seen Alive in Baghdad, so if you've seen any of the podcasts from Alive in Baghdad, it's a really great um, set of videos where cameras are given to folks in in Baghdad, uh, and 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 it was, uh, you know, it, it's it's really uh, one of those things where give some people some cameras, give them give them some training, and and have them, um, you know, uh, go out and get this stuff. And what you got was a much more real view of, you know, uh, of what was going on. And mm-hmm. and um, and I think that that is the, you know, that is the advantage. I mean, I think that that's the, um, you know, the advantage of having that kind of real. Uh, feel to it, but but I but I do think that um, it is uh, there is a there is a sense of you know one of the things like we, I don't know if, if you were watching the you know for us we're recording this on Wednesday last night there was this big Oakland you know in, in Oakland California there was you know the the, the police were tear gassing people and everything yeah. else Again, the problem yeah. with citizen journalism is uh, that they don't know how to use their cell camera you yeah. know so so you know if I just you know I just feel like you want to shake them and just go okay so pointing at something and don't move <laughs> just stop just stop moving stop, three stop, seconds stop, stop, stop. give me three good yeah, seconds just, just, just stop moving and let things happen don't don't like keep on walking with it just just get a good frame and shoot it you know and and i you know they i get that they want to be in the experience but they you know they need to you know this is what citizen photography doesn't oftentimes doesn't have when they're in there the citizen photojournalism mm-hmm. is they don't get to switch gears to i am going to take a picture for prosperity you know like i'm going to do this you know, to to make sure that everybody uh, really sees what's happening here, yeah. rather than I'm just going to turn my cell phone on and keep on walking. Right. You know, and, right. and or I'm going to run around and I'm not paying attention to the frame. And that's what a professional will bring up. Now, it's stuff that I report is trying to improve on. There's tons of little tutorials on what to do and how to set it up and everything else. 
uh, on CNN site. You know, I do think that there's a big future in that. Um, yeah, but, but with iReport, I don't know if things have changed, but that just seems like, I mean, I applaud that, but it just seems like, why, why am I giving you my footage just so I can see my name in a lower third? And that's turns it. Out, it turns out 15 minutes of fame is worth a lot. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that for, for news organizations to step that up one, um, for them to move it to, I will uh, pay you for it. They don't have mm-hmm. to pay anybody a salary. All they have to do is pay finders fees for the stuff that comes out. You know, and, and so the thing is, is that's the reality of what's coming for the news, news organizations, which is good news for them and not so good for, you know, photojournalists. Yeah. Again, it gets into the situation that's affecting our industry. It's affecting all the industries. That, and, and it's part of what's contributing to unemployment and everything else is that the, you, you have to be at the very, very, very top of your, of your game you know, in whatever industry you're in, uh, or you have to be really inexpensive, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, but you can't, that, in, there, that, that no man's land between those two things just continues to widen. Yeah. Sarah, where do you fall on this? Should, should we be letting, you know, back to the time, should we be letting, or not that we have power to let or not let, but photojournalists go into areas where they're going to be put in harm's way? Um, or do we let the crowd that's there, that's armed with their Android and iPhones cover it for us? Well, I think it's a really hard thing to like see so many of the journalists have have died, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's really sad, and it's something that's kind of shaking us. Um, but I, I do still think it's really important, and um, if that's something that somebody feels passionate about and wants to do, I can understand why they want to do it. Now, uh, granted, there are a lot of times when you you really need to be in that spot. I mean, even like even you know at a wedding there's there's things I can't get to and it's right there like I'm like in the space shooting it so I think that um there's a place for both I I don't necessarily think it's gonna completely take over but um but maybe we could scale back a little to see kind of less yeah. You know, yeah. Well, things that technology is not stopping. Right. So it seems to be improving at this breakneck pace. So the conversation that we'll be having on this next year, this time is going to be completely different because the hardware and capabilities will be different. Ron, what about you? I mean, where do you fall on this whole journalist versus crowd thing again? Yeah, you know, like I said, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a mix, but there's really no there's no substitute for a professional for when it comes to the real high end of it. And so I think there's always going to be a place for that. Okay, cool. Did did anybody ever see did anybody see Rest Rest Repro? I did not. I I, I didn't saw either. some excerpts from it and uh it looked really good and it's sort of on my I really want to see that because the okay. the sense the sense of what I saw even in the little excerpts of really making you feel like you were there. I mean that was it was, an, um, it was pretty amazing actually. And yeah. I don't know what all it was. I mean have you seen the whole thing through? I ended up started, I ended up watching a couple like probably an hour and a half of it, um, and I got interrupted. But um, I ended up watching it randomly, which is totally crazy because it was so intriguing. Like the the film was just you couldn't stop watching it. Like yeah. it really was so fascinating and done so well. And um, I didn't even realize that the director of the film had been had been killed. I didn't even realize that until I saw, you know, um, the story for today. So, uh, that's just crazy. It's intense, but it's a really good film as a side note. Like I think 
people should see it and, and get a better feel for what these photojournalists are, are involved in. Is that uh, is that available on Quickster? I mean, Netflix or whatever they're calling yeah, themselves? Yeah, <laughs> actually, it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was actually on Netflix when I watched it. Um, at dur- it was like one of those live ones you could watch and stream. You oh, could cool. stream it live. So, yeah, check Sweet. it out. All right. Well, all right. I'll bookmark that. Uh, Restrepo, R-E-S-T-R-E-P-O is on the watch list. All right, guys, before we continue, I'd like to remind those that are living in the San Francisco Bay Area about our TWIP meetups. We do them monthly, and we have a very special meetup coming up this Sunday, October 30th, the day before Halloween. This will be a live True Blood-themed model shoot. Unfortunately, all spots are filled for this particular meetup, but we've got a crazy list of meetups that are scheduled for every month coming up after that. So... Just make sure you get in there, join the meetup group, and you'll get notified immediately when we release a new one. We release them about two weeks before the meetup is going to happen. If you want to get more details on that, just go, I made a little short URL for this, so just go to fvj.me slash twip dash meetup. That's fvj.me slash twip dash meetup. That'll redirect you to the meetup page, which is kind of a long, gnarly URL. And uh, from there, just sign up and uh, we'll keep in touch with you. All right, guys, next story that we're going to hit on is about production of hardware. And this this actually hits home because, you know, you read these stories and they don't seem real because you're just reading about them and they're not really affecting you directly. But I, yesterday, in fact, I was in San Francisco at Calumet Photographic um, buying some gear for this meetup as it as it uh, happens. Um, so I was buying some gear and I noticed that there were a bunch of D7000 boxes on the, wa- on the wall. You know, there's nine cod D7000. I remember these things were in short supply a while ago. There are like seven of them up there. So I asked the woman, I'm like, oh, well, it looks like the D700s are plentiful now, you know, or is uh, demand slowing down? She's like, no, demand isn't really slowing down. And that's the last batch we'll get for the foreseeable future because of the, you know, Nikon and Sony and all these different companies halting or slowing down production in their various plants in Thailand that are affected by these crazy floods that have been going on. So Sony has halted production of the NEX-7 and the Reflex Alpha 65. Nikon has called off production reportedly, allegedly, of the Nikon D800, which is supposed to be the, uh, the replacement for the D700. So this, this kind of stuff continues to happen, right? So is it, like Alex, I wanted to throw it to you first because you are the, you know, of all of us, you probably have more gear than all of us combined with a multiple of seven, right? So, so what is, what is like these gear slowdowns mean for the average photographer out there? I mean, is it just a matter of, okay, learn what you have and stop buying new stuff like David Dushman says, or, you know, should you be hoarding gear and buying it before it all goes away? I don't know. I, th- I think you, you, you uh, most of us bought great gear when we bought it. Uh, and it can last for a long time if we take good care of it. And we should use it as long as we need it. I mean, if, if it's not available, you don't need the D1X to, to shoot your next thing. You have mm-hmm. whatever you're shooting with the, you have your 5D or your D1, you know, whatever you have already Amen. has been yep. doing great until they announce that. And it yep. doesn't mean that you need to move directly to the next big thing. I mean, that is the, the obsession for some people. Um, 
to uh, you know to grab that. And I will admit that I have my own problems with that, uh, especially <laughs> related to iPhones. Um, but yeah. uh, and I, I I think of good business reasons. Uh, but, but with photography, um, it's almost like you know Canon releases the next excuse for you not to be a good photographer because right. you have to get this new camera in order to prove that you're a good photographer. Yeah, I mean, of- I, the, the real challenge here is that what happens and what's happening in Thailand is that a lot of the plants that supply, whether it's hard drives or whether it's chips. Um, that supply these, they, they tend to cluster. So all, even all the companies that are doing the same thing tend to be in the same place. They get tax incentives to do that. It means that they have more workers and more training that knows how to do, that, you know, that know how to do what they're talking about. Um, they have a lot of reasons for them to cluster all of those. So it's not just one company. It's a lot of them will oftentimes be in the same industrial park. And that's what's happening here where you have the same industrial park holding a whole bunch of different pieces for a bunch of different manufacturers. Yeah. Um, it, means that they're, it means that when they're, when they're all buying certain kinds of supplies, it's cheaper because all that comes in at one time. Uh, it comes in in one piece. It doesn't have to go all over the country or all over the world. And so these, these things make sense almost all the time, except for when there's a natural disaster, which it does seem like we are getting more of, which uh, is a whole other concern. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I think that you know, the reality is, is that I'm, I'm fine with my 5Ds. You know, and and, and uh, I, I'm sure I, I could shoot with them for another year. You know, yeah. I don't, you know, and, and when the new one comes out and it's easy to get, then I'll get it. I, I also would say that I, as someone who has often bought gear, I bought one of the first hundred or I didn't buy all 100. I bought in the first hundred <laughs> batch that came into the U.S. I bought the early EX1s uh, that Sony made. And that was not one of my better decisions. Like I pressed so hard to get it because we had a project coming in. I, that's what I wanted to shoot on. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that a lot of times the first batch is not what you want in any way. Um, you know, I had, there were problems with the chip. There were problems with the back focus. There's problems with the paint. There were problems with the, you know, there's all kinds of issues that, that came out because that was the first batch. You're generally way better to wait for the second batch, the second rev of almost anything that's coming out new uh, and let them work out those, um, you know, kinks with people who are willing to pay for that. Yeah, you're speaking to the choir or preaching to the choir, Sarah. Um, I know you very fondly remember the very first iPhone, and you were on that boat, right? Mm, yeah, I was standing <laughs> in line, of course, and I still and uh, I I just recently figured out. Well, I did, my most recent purchase of the iPhone, I didn't actually have to stand in line, which was awesome. But yes, they. I get every single one. I I haven't really skipped a generation, so <laughs> I, I'm right with you guys on that. Like, I love having the latest equipment and the latest gear for sure. But um, you know, the natural disasters are definitely um, causing an issue and something that we have to be concerned about and think about. But with the you know with Canon coming out with the One DX and you know, it's just. It's amazing that they're able to handle, um, you know, so much of the demand that we put on them as it is. And we just kind of have to deal with a lot of these things that happen kind of because of the natural disasters. But um, it is interesting that none of them manufacture in the U.S. I mean, but we can have our own natural disasters here as well. So it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, get away with not having issues. It just means that 
it, we won't all have them together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Ron, I know you're the, you're the sort of the antithesis of the guy that needs to have the latest and greatest gear. You're more pragmatic <laughs> about your purchase decisions, right? So what do you, I, what do you think about well, this? Well, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. You know. <laughs> Ron, Ron's like, hey, my AE1 is working. Great. Exactly. <laughs> not true. I, I have an iPhone 4S right here next to me. So, you know, sometimes I definitely jump right on the on the bandwagon. Uh, yeah, I, I just think it's kind of interesting, these... Uh, the sort of sp- mind space we've gotten ourselves into of not only needing the latest and greatest, but needing to know the status of the latest and greatest, right? You know, yeah. if we didn't have this instant news cycle going on, none of us would even know that, okay, there's been some delay on some of these things. Mm-hmm. If anything, I think it may be sort of a a testament to companies about not pre-announcing stuff so much because then you just you just sort of... Well, it kind of depends on what you're watching, too. I mean, you're you're you put yourself in harm's way, so to speak. Right. Because <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I was all into mini bikes. I built a mini bike and I knew I knew everything about what was going on in the mini bike industry. Right. Because so yep. I was that was where my brain was. And now, you know, I can tell you what was happening because who cares? Right. I don't I don't care about that particular thing right now. But I can tell you that. Siri can set appointments for me on my iPhone, <laughs> you know, that okay, kind of the thing. Other thing. On the other side of that is paying, paying attention to all of that also means that you're not buying a, uh iPhone 4 at the end of August. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's very true. I mean, there, there is some value to kind of being aware of what's coming and timing your purchases and that sort of thing. And I, and I agree with that. And I think that's, that's a sensible thing. It's just sort of interesting how day to day we we tend to get updates and spend i mean i know i do i I, way too many rss feeds and stuff that are feeding me information most of which you know i really wish was sort of condensed and and fed to me at a little bit more of a overview kind of level but kind of get stuck in that mode of just give me the latest latest little factoid in the news cycle Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you know the, the the whole all the natural disaster stuff i just i just wish there was some sort of theory that could explain this this change in the climate that we're seeing but I, that's, <laughs> that's crazy talk i guess actually, I, think, I think it has more to do with i think it i my theory related to this if you're if you if you'd like to know sure, yes, please share. It's, not that, it's not that it's changed it's just that we have more people living in floodplains and more people living in you know we just have more people i, so have, a, I, have, a different, I have a different theory alex i i think yours is flawed here's a <laughs> Here's, like a different theory. Right, Here's a different theory that comes from the Discovery Channel. The magnetic field that surrounds our planet and protects us from the... Uh, it's about to switch, right? It's about to flip. Our poles are about to flip any time now. So I think that is the cause of all this craziness you know not not wait. the president not you know it's i can't i can't wait I'd love to see that happen. Does, does that mean we're all gonna like flip upside down no it it's means all- for about 30 or 40 years we will have no magnetic field and we will be uh they said the instances of of you know c- cancer and all this other stuff will increase exponentially until the magnetic field finishes its flip but it's uh it's about to flip and it's done it before. It'll do it again. So that came from the Discovery Channel. <laughs> this, is yeah. the, this is the Discovery Channel. Yeah, it's a. Well, it must be true if it comes from the Discovery. Yeah, channel. Right. Hey, those guys are smart. Come on. You know? Let's just let's get everybody worked up to a bigger frenzy than they already are. <laughs> Google right Google magnetic field flippage of the Earth right, or whatever. They're not I think. saying that it's gonna happen. They're saying there's, there's a theory that there could be things like that. It is a theory. It is a theory. I think it's gonna happen in December of. Next exactly. 
it can happen anytime between now and 150 years from now. That's all I'm saying. You know? Now and 150,000 years from now. The earth moves in, in large cycles. It's not Her, like, you know. How is it going to affect photography? That's the question we all should That's right. I yes. know. Exactly. Our clocks will start running backwards on our cameras, you know, well. countdown. All right, guys, before we continue, um, we have a special treat. We've got an interview um, with a guest of one of the most widely published photographers around today. He's got more than 120 books to his credit, and over 2 million of those books have been sold. He's an editorial photographer. His name is Michael Freeman, and I sat down to talk with him about his career, his travels, and why two two passports are sometimes better than one, Alex. (laughs) So let's give a listen. I'm here with Mr. Michael Freeman. He's a London, England-based editorial photographer and author. He's he's behind so many things it's hard to even get your brain around, some of which we're going to talk talk about in this interview. But he's written for Smithsonian Magazine, Time Life Magazine. He has published around 120 books. That's 120 books, all related to photography in some way. So we're going to talk about that in this interview and also what it takes to be an editorial photographer, a successful one in this day and age. So Michael Freeman, welcome to This Week in Photo. Hi, Frederick. My pleasure. Okay. So let's just jump right into this because there's a lot to talk about. Um, For the folks who may not have heard of Michael Freeman, um, let's just start with your background. How did you get into photography and what has kept you in photography all these years? Well, how I got into photography was escaping advertising, and it's a long time ago. Um, but I I guess I was a late starter. and I, it, it took me some time to summon up the courage to leave a, a well-paid job in an ad agency in London and um, uh, just resign. But... Uh, fortunately, Time Life helped me. The, the, the short story is that I'd actually been given a sabbatical by my advertising agency. This is a different era, of course. And I took my second-hand cameras up the Amazon for three months. And wow. at the end of it, after more months, etc., etc., an exhibition, Time Life uh, asked to, to, if they could hang on to some of the pictures because they were starting a new series. Um, out of London, uh, called The World's Wild Places. And months later, I got a call when I was at the agencies saying, from the picture editor saying, would you like to come along and see what we're doing with your pictures? And I, I did after work, and it was the cover and opening spreads, a couple of chapter openers, and I went home on the bus that evening and thought, you know, that's the best encouragement I'll ever get. So well, I resigned the next day, which probably sounds ungrateful to the ad agency, but... They were so nice. They gave me a leaving present of two weeks photography for a client, which wow. I thought was sweet. Yeah, lots of people never get that get to that point where they actually find something that they are destined to do and are able to make that jump. So, so true. Count yourself lucky. So okay. So you, so now you are you know at that point you are officially a photographer, right? So you you made the leap into photography. What is it about photography? Do you think just taking it a level deeper? that excites you you know some people say in art it's it's a way you painters say this is a way for them to communicate their ideas and their vision or what's in their you know past or whatever how what makes you excited about photography i i I really wish i could give you a a meaningful not glib answer Uh, (laughs) they really Uh really i don't know i mean but uh, I suppose, along with anyone in in the creative arts, whether it's uh, it's writing 
or painting. I, it was just something I needed to do. I mean, I just had this urge to make images. And I suppose if I'd been a proper painter, if, I, if I'd known how to paint, I might have done it that way. But there was something about the immediacy anyway of, 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 of seeing reporting the world. I, mean, I, I do travel a lot. I always have, more than half of every year. So I suspect that it's that marriage of, of wanting to make images, which is something some, some deep down in my cortex, um, coupled with... Um, the idea of interesting, exciting locations. Yeah. So, which which is first, the chicken or the egg? Do you? Is it the travel? Do you travel so that you can make photos, or do you make photos so that you can travel? Ah, uh, I, I I I travel so that I can make make photos. I mean, <laughs> I like the way you said that because that's my line when somebody says, "Oh, you're a travel photographer," and I say, "Well, yeah." But really, you know, when you when you say travel photographer, it sounds like somebody who's who's going off to fulfil the needs of the travel industry, which is fine. Yeah. That's good. I mean, you know, there's, there's a, it's a business. But really, I'm more interested in seeing the the full range of uh, life and things on this planet, and I'm really lucky enough to be able to to do it. I mean, to do it as a living. Yeah. Now, Michael, before before we started recording, you and I were chit-chatting about just sort of the state of the industry and education and that sort of thing around photography. And like I said in the intro, you've published over 120 books out there, but most of those books, correct me if I'm wrong, are not how-to books. These aren't, correct. this is an f-stop, this is how you make a drop shadow, this is how you take a pimple off someone, right? So what are your books and why have you skewed more towards art and less towards technique? Well, um, probably a two-part answer there. I'd, I'd say that about 40 of, of, of the books I've done are about photography. The others are part of what I do as an editorial photographer, and, and some of them are quite commercial uh, books about modern design and architecture, because there's a big market for that, and some of them are more personal uh, documentary reportage projects that you have to struggle to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. the, the latest of which is a book called uh, The Tea Horse Road, which is about an ancient trade route between China and Tibet. And that took two years. I mean, those kind of my baby projects take around that time. And the one prior to that was on Sudan, a uh, very unpopular subject. But it was great because there was nobody else there. Um, but I suspect you mean that within the books I'm writing and mm -hmm. illustrating that are about photography, what, what line do I take? Right. It, it, the earlier ones um, were perhaps more obvious and traditional and covered, uh, you know, equipment and techniques. But, you know, why you would use this lens to do this thing. But more recently, I have backed right off that simply because it's become a very heavily subscribed area, publishing, uh, writing, talking about photography. And frankly, there are, there are hundreds of good books. Well, there are hundreds of books and dozens of good ones about um, deep techniques and equipment. Um, so why do I need to... I, I don't need to contribute any more to that area right. of photography. What concerns me more, uh, and more and more as a concern, is what photography is really about 
to my mind as a professional editorial photographer um what concerns me and my friends and colleagues who do similar things and it's it's not to do with um the the next piece of of kit it's to do with having ideas visual ideas using visual imagination uh, composition if you like designing the shots mm-hmm. uh, the logistics the planning the preparation working up uh, story ideas I mean most of what I do is uh, what, what I do and my, the people I know who do is basically storytelling yeah. uh, we're doing that's what it is a story it's what you do for a magazine a, a book is a big story it's telling a tale and it's trying to tell it uh, visually through photography as much as possible with some help from captions. Now, you've, you've traveled all over the world, Southeast Asia and on Japan, all, all these different areas around the globe. You've crisscrossed it. What, what is driving you to these areas? Are these self-assignments? Are you saying, you know what, there's a story that I feel needs to be told in Sudan, so I'm going there in two weeks, and I'm going to spend some time there to, to tell the story, or are there clients on the back end saying, hey, we need this done, so Michael, here's your ticket, get out there and bring us back some amazing things? It, there's always, first, an incentive, and then second, momentum tends to take over, and familiarity. So, Southeast Asia began with um, an assignment a long time ago for, from Time Life, uh, Time Life Books, London Edit, who had basically started me on my career. And, you know, I I paid my dues by doing, you know, small shoots for them. They had a lot of publications going until finally I got my own book, uh, my own complete book, which was on a a hill tribe, actually that's what we used to say, ethnic minority, Mm -hmm. um, on the Thai-Burmese border. It was a three-month assignment now. This doesn't happen anymore. I mean, it's a three-month assignment with no no significant budget considerations at all. It was, a, the, it was the old time-life philosophy of go there and get get the job Bring back done. some I, magic. Weave some straw from, or some gold from straw, right? right? Yeah, but, but basically don't come back until you've got the shoot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they weren't micromanaging at yeah. all. That was, that was the time-life ethos. And I... And I, I, I liked, I liked the job. I liked the place. Thailand at the time was not the long haul tourist destination it's become. Uh, nor was Southeast Asia. This was, this was in the aftermath, the last few years of of, of the Vietnam War, and I found it insanely exotic. It was like Mars. So, I then started doing more things, and because. Thailand, in particular, Southeast Asia in general, was after the Vietnam War was becoming was coming more into the compass of, of 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 the general public's perception of an interest. Um, then magazines began to be a little bit more interested in first of all general stories in that area, and then specific stories. So I followed through with that. Sudan. It was a, quite a different thing um, because I had no familiarity essentially with Africa been, mm-hmm. been a couple of times but I had very good friends um, uh, uh, Tim Carney and Vicky Butler and Vicky had been the time stringer in Bangkok 
uh, when I started on this book on the Akar, that was the minority, mm -hmm. and we stayed friends. And then Tim, who's a diplomat, he was the last U.S. ambassador to Sudan. Um, that was a long time ago, Clinton administration, because since then they've only had charge d'affaires. And they felt, after Tim retired from the Foreign Service, that they had unfinished business there, um, uh, because Tim had, had, had disagreed with the, with the policy um, uh, at the time. And they had, they had wonderful context. So Vicky said, why don't we do a book you know, that really tries to explain this complicated country? So, um, and that's what we did. Wow. Um, it happens in different ways. So when you're, let's take it a level deeper than that. So you're, you're in Sudan. You know, you're there. You get your gear. You're you're ready. You're, you're ready to go out and you start shooting. How how do you ensure that you are, you know, respectful of the ethnic minorities that are there and that they'll allow you to take the, your, your their pictures? How do you, as a as an editorial photographer? insert yourself into the situation so that you're not influencing the situation or do you influence it how, do, how does what's your process for that well i i mean uh last question first you always influence um you can't be totally anonymous when you're shooting but but to go back to the beginning of the question this is what the planning and preparation and logistics are that's their role in in assignment photography you spend a lot of time uh, setting, you know, arranging things, arranging the permissions. Now, I mean, this is a country that's Islamic for a start, in the north and in the south. They're now two separate countries, of course. Um, the, it's, it's Christian and animist. Um, there had been a war, still conflict going on. And on top of that, uh, Sudan was and still remains on the uh, America's on the State Department's list of um, state sponsors of terrorism. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> we we have some problems here. Yeah. Fortunately, and and this is where I, I mean this is a very interesting uh, shoot uh, because Tim, a consummate field officer, uh, a really fine diplomat, he went on to be uh, ambassador to your ambassador to Haiti, and yeah. um, he still he still does work for the State Department. And they maintained such good contacts at the at the highest level. So that was the vice president in the north, um, Ali Osman Taha, and John Garang in the south, who unfortunately later died in a helicopter crash. So we were signed off um, at governmental level uh, on both sides. And in our little way, as, a, as just a book, we were one of the few cross-line um, projects going in Sudan. So this had to be managed quite carefully because we needed support and most of the time and most of the the uh, the difficulties were going to be in the north. So but we didn't want money. We wanted facilitation and we had assigned to us um a very charming major um and it was interesting because I assumed there was going to be some management. I, I've worked in, uh, you know, uh, communist regimes before. On regimes where, you know, there's, there's a high amount of control. And if you're declared, um, which you don't always do, mm -hmm. uh, but if you're declared, you're, you're basically, um, 
you know, you have to follow certain procedures. But interestingly, there was never a single moment where I was, I was pressed, pushed towards doing anything, shooting anything, or prevented from shooting anything. Hmm. So you were completely free. Now, wh why, why is well, that? I, is it the camera? They're just like, okay, this guy's is a non-combatant here, and he's, uh, he's telling a story? Or wh no, it's the way, is? no, it's, it's, it's the way you handle it. Um, and, of course, um, I was not alone in this. I had Tim. So um, we split between us. I'd say, I want to do this. And Tim would you know, monitor how this was, it was being, uh, being received because it wasn't just on a, 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 a governmental or military level. It was, we'd go to a market or stop in a street and you know immediately there's going to be some suspicion. I mean, what's, you know, what, what are these Westerners doing here? Hell, they just sent a cruise missile in. And took out a and took out a, a warehouse. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. um, and so y you have to deal with people in in a particular way. So we would always explain what we were doing, and we would do it at, at, at market street level as well as at. Sorry, uh, that was a. Shall I start that again? We just had a phone. I don't know if you could hear that. Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah. Okay, then. Um, as well as at this kind of uh, higher level, we do it at street level, and we have our, you know, this is this is dealing with people, which is yet another subject in itself. Yeah. And I think any any reportage photographer, any documentary photographer, has to develop those skills. Doesn't so, mean to say you're perfect, but. So if you if you would, if you were going to give some advice to photographers that may not have the opportunity to travel abroad, but want to tell stories in their own neighborhoods or in their own cities, so say there's a San Francisco photographer um, who lives in San Francisco and decides, you know, um, I'm listening to this interview. I'm going to give myself a self assignment to document um, the homeless in San Francisco. How would they go about doing that to, without? you know, without disturbing. What, if you were going to give yourself that assignment, what would be your first steps? My first steps would be to do the research, do the, the journalistic equivalent of due diligence. So, what is the situation? Read up on it. What are the uh, official and, uh, and non-official bodies, organizations dealing with that issue? Um, so, get get a proper heads up from from the professionals within that area. Mm -hmm. And then, armed with that, of course, you're still going to have to talk to people on the street. You have to engage. I mean, it's, should we say, these people skills are essential, but not so difficult. Uh, you know, if, if you can, if your assignment allows this, then... It's, a, it's, it's always not a bad idea, particularly in a sensitive situation, to go in without a camera or the camera's packed away um, and not looking like, you know, a photographer fresh from Iraq with, you know, flat jackets and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> and your jacket with the CNN I mean, logo on it. Or <laughs> but, you know, put yourself in the position of the, the people you're going to photograph. Um, how would you feel? Um, you know, somebody charging in hey no of course so i mean be empathetic so if you're if you're if you're in this situation you're the photographer you've done your research and you're out there 
you know, on the front lines taking pictures, um, empathizing and doing all that stuff. Is it, is it um, the right thing to do to offer money to your subjects to allow you to photograph them? Or in, and if they ask you, how do you handle that? No, the short answer is it isn't, it isn't okay, but it's a really good question because, um, ah, and, and this, this thing does come up. Um, I mean, basically, in, 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 for, in journalism, you, you should not be paying your sources because they are, you're, you're over-influencing the situation, you're buying mm-hmm. your way into it. On the other hand, of course, there is the issue of, of people in dire need, mm-hmm. um, and there are cultural situations. I, I mean, here's an example. I did a story for Gale, the uh, GEO, the, the, the German equivalent of National Geographic, in Suriname. That's a uh, former Dutch Guiana, uh, and northeastern side of South America, mm-hmm. on the, uh, the, the ethnic group known as the Bush Negroes, uh, Bos Negro. Mm-hmm. And, and a very interesting story because these were these were uh, communities that had escaped slavery on the coast and gone inland way up into the rainforest, and they'd done it so so uh, quickly in a way that that they were able to reestablish um, essentially West African uh, communities, which remained very isolated. Anyway, point is, I'm there. We I have a I have a guide and interpreter, and the custom was well. You should offer. You should offer a gift. Um, so we worked out what the gift would be. It was, a, I think, it was a tape recorder or a radio, and uh, did all that. And then it was fine. That was to the the head of the of, of a, a group of villagers. And at the end of all of this, um, Gruner and Yao, the publishers, said, "Nope, we're not allowing that expense. Um, you don't do that." So. I paid for it. Never mind. But that was so. so that's the kind of conflict which is, is irresolvable. Yeah, yeah. You can see both points of view. So, yeah, I worked it out by doing. Right? It is. It is. It's not easy. There's no simple answer. Yeah. So um, you, we were talking about how many books you've published, and I'm looking at the numbers here. Over, you've got, you've sold over two million or almost two million copies in more than 20 languages. So there's mm. a lot of your work floating around the planet, um, yeah. which a lot, of, a lot of people would kill to have that body of work. Maybe too much. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but if you, if you, you know, we, we look at the cross-section of, of communication today, and we've got social media, we've got Google+, Twitter, Facebook. It goes on and on and on. Mm. Um, are you using these tools to help get the word out and and to leverage those those two million plus fans, or or how do you, how do you manage that? I absolutely should be, and I'm I'm I always feel really guilty that I I don't know I never get around to it. I, yeah. I, I I mean I know I ought to. I'm being told to. Common sense tells me I ought to be tweeting, and I, I was thinking this morning I haven't actually um, gone on to Twitter from the start of this basically publicity tour that my publishers are putting me on and I've been here over a week mm. and, and that's terrible I should but I don't know I'm too busy yeah, uh, yeah it, we were talking about that too because there's there are the photographers who, who are able and for, for some reason have the time to stay on Google Plus and Twitter 
um, for extended periods of time. And then there's the ones I'm generalizing, of course, and then the ones yeah. that don't, right? <laughs> that right. You're, you're clearly in the camp of people that are like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm shooting. I got to somehow figure out how uh -huh. to get, get this social media thing into my shooting life, right? Well, I, I mean, I worry more deeply than that about how much time should I be spending writing books about photography, uh, writing about what I do rather than doing it. And it's, and it's become an issue because, um, I mean, basically, I, I spend, I've always spent uh, like seven months of every year, because I'm mainly on location, shooting abroad. And more recently, I, I can feel this getting eaten into because there's so much demand uh, for, you know, publication about, about photography. Mm -hmm. But if, if the balance goes in, in that direction anymore, I'll stop being a photographer. I'll just be a writer, a pontificator, a pundit about photography. And that's terrible. I never want to be that. <laughs> yeah. you know? I want to be a photographer, stay a photographer, mm -hmm. and just have, should we say, maybe a third of the time talking, writing about what I do. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a good mix, right? I mean, it, you can't, you know, as my dad used to say, you can't, you can't master everything, right? The, the whole jack of all trades, master of none right. thing, right? You, you have to master one particular thing. So yeah, you can't be a Renaissance man anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard. If you were, um, so travel tips, you know, if there's one person to ask about travel tips, especially from a photographer standpoint, what one or two tips would you give photographers that are preparing to, to leave their country and go to another one? Like what, what do you have in your bag that um, you would not leave home without other than your camera and, you know, the, the obvious things? Other than my cameras. I wish I'd thought about this question. Uh, you know, <laughs> they, they, it's always like this in, in, in interviews. There's always this sort of grand question at the end. All right. What's your answer to the meaning of life? <laughs> <laughs> if you could go back to the beginning and do it all over again, Michael, what would you do? <laughs> yes, indeed. What do I what do I carry? I carry too much. I, I've become, um, I mean, infamous for for not being able to travel light, which is another shameful thing. I, you know, I just sort of uh, pack all kinds of things. Let me think. Let me think. Is there anything other than the cameras? Yeah. That, uh, Other than the cameras and currency, you know. <laughs> cameras, currency, um, like antibiotics, or you know, what, what do you what do you carry with you that you're like, okay, of, of all these trips that you've gone on, you like, okay, the one thing that I'm glad I take on every trip with me is this thing. Is it a power adapter? Is it, you know, well, you I don't do know. all of that. I mean, unfortunately, the you know the list. Um, it, I mean, I, I if I'm going on a long trip, I take two three days. To, to do the packing mm -hmm. because I've got this long list and if you, you forget one cable and you're going to the wrong kind of place and you're like sunk yeah that. and uh, and yeah um, do you have a checklist because that, that's what I always wonder I mean do photographers oh. like you have this long okay I'm going to XYZ country where's my list and you just check things off as you're preparing always always I have this this long boring checklist which goes from equipment down to medical uh, documentation uh, I carry two passports by the way but we're allowed to do that in the UK hmm. well it, it, was, it seems to me a good idea because there was a time for instance when 
if you're in if you're a businessman or something traveling around if you went to um israel then you couldn't go to saudi arabia um, with the same passport i think the same is, is still true and you know when apartheid was going in south africa it was, it was the same between south africa and its surrounding countries um but i like the idea of uh of having a spare passport and you know sometimes you know they look at they look at the stamps and say Burma Myanmar why why have you gone to Myanmar three mm -hmm. times last yeah. year mm -hmm. uh, things like that um, I'm not giving you a, a very good answer am I Really? No, no, that's that's great. That's great. I'm I'm taking notes because I'm thinking. Well, I don't think I can get two passports living in the United States, but I can see how that would come in handy to be able to pick and choose where you've been so that you could get to where you need to go. Right? Yeah. I mean, I I always travel prepared as prepared as as I can be. I mean, particularly with clothing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, pair of good hiking boots if if that's going to be the order of. Uh, uh, walking stick if I'm doing doing climbing or which I have been in, in uh, on the last book in, in Tibet Western Sichuan places like that but generally medicines you can pick up on the way yeah yeah so that's right sleep, yeah. sleeping tablets high altitude tablets that kind of thing wow exciting you are the international man of mystery, um, and I'm sure everyone that's listening to this is jealous. <laughs> well, it wasn't supposed to be mysterious. I was supposed to give you the proper answer. <laughs> well, you've gone to places that many of us will never go, so that that in of itself is a mystery. So, where was you know, Michael? Thanks for for taking the time out of your day to to have this conversation with me. It's uh, it's been insightful. Where can uh, people go to see your work and keep up with the things that you're working on and all that good stuff? Well, I mean, if all else fails, just Google Michael Freeman. Uh, there are there are some others, of course, but they they do different things. Um, my website is michaelfreemanphoto.com, and that's photo spelled P-H-O-T-O. -O. Um, so there's stuff there, and I try and keep it up to date. Good. And you're not you're not on Twitter yet, right? Oh, I am. I am. I, sh I mean, I but. Um, all right, you've 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 inspired sufficient guilt to me that I will actually, following this, I will I will post a tweet, but I I keep thinking I should do it I should do it. Yes. yes. I, mean, I have a good good friend Mike Yamash, who's a National Geographic photographer, and mm -hmm. whenever he he goes on the road, I I feel terrible because he's all the time he's 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 tweeting from his phone, and I think why can't I do that? <laughs> you can, you can. I know I can. All I have to do is is. Uh, find the will to do it. So you set a set a calendar reminder twice a day to beep and tell you to tweet something interesting, and you'll be set. What an awful idea! Thank you very much for that suggestion. <laughs> well, uh, it's halfway tongue in cheek, but you know it might work. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for again taking the time to chat with me. This has been great. No, it's been a lot of fun. Nice talking to you, Frederick. Okay, that was editorial photographer Michael Freeman. To learn more about Michael, visit his website at michaelfreemanphoto.com. And now that I've guilted him into using Twitter more, as you heard in that interview, you can catch him on Twitter at twitter.com slash michaelfreeman. Okay, it's uh, time to give a nod to one of our sponsors. Alex, who are, is this episode sponsored by? We'd like to thank, of course, Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. And... Uh, 
you know, I'm a big, big fan of Squarespace, so it's really easy to talk about. I, yeah, if you go to pixelcore.com or dvgarage.com or bordersack.com, which is my, my infrequently used blog. Um, <laughs> your, your cobweb blog? <laughs> my cobweb blog. I'm working on it. I'm working on many, many posts that will someday end up there. But the point is, is that I, I was able to put that up in a couple hours. Um, and, uh, and what you're going to see with, you know, dvgarage has, uh, dvgarage.com has e-commerce and it's complicated and has tons of custom code. Uh, Pixelcore has a bunch of custom code and a bunch of custom layouts. Mine has none. It was all done without any, any HTML. So you can, whether you're doing something that's complex or whether you're doing something that's simple, uh, Squarespace is just a great way to get started. If you're trying to figure out how you're going to get your photos up there and how you're going to put your gallery in, how you're going to put your Flickr uh, displays in and your Twitter widgets and your social media buttons and your Google Maps, all of that stuff is just a widget. You just add it. You don't have to write any code. You don't have to figure out how to install it on the server. You don't have to figure out any of that stuff. You can just, you know, just get it up and get it going. Um, you, know, you can update it from your iPhone and iPad. Uh, there's hundreds of templates that you can uh, choose from. And it's just, it's just a, such a great way. If you just don't know how to get started, um, you know, Squarespace is, is the way to check it out. And, uh, and you, you, know, you don't have to know how to install servers. It's all in the cloud. You don't have to worry about your server melting down if you finally get a big break and suddenly uh you know someone talks about it uh, you're not going to get slashed on it so um so it's just a it's a great way to go now you can sign up for a free account you don't need a credit card you can just try it out try building a website see if it works for you and uh, if you decide to purchase it uh, if you use the offer code twip10 uh, you'll get 20 percent off for the first six months so again that's squarespace.com and use the offer code twip10 that's twip10 uh, and get 20% off uh, the first six months. And really, this is the place for uh, you to get started if you, if you haven't gotten there. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Mm-hmm. All right. It's time now for some listener Q&A. This is a segment where our guests answer questions that have come in from our various online presences via our website forums, our Facebook group, Twitter, using the hashtag TWIP questions, etc. If you want to submit your questions to us to answer on future shows, just uh, do that. You know, head over to Twitter and use the hashtag, hashtag TWIP questions. Pose your questions and uh, we'll see if we can't get them answered live on this week in photo. Question number one is... Um, uh, this is a Twit forum member. Uh, to, let me see if I can pronounce this right. To samely, to how do you pronounce that, Alex? To T U S I L A M E asks. He says a friend of mine has a Nikon D three or thirty one hundred, and he recommend recommended that he get a fifty uh, one point eight. And after he bought it, he says that the lens is manual focus. He wants to know, is it true that this lens is actually a manual focus? The Nikon specs say it has both auto and manual focus. And the answer is courtesy of our show notes writer, Sohail, who is listening. He says he wrote the AFD, the AF-D lenses require the camera to have a focusing motor in the body. The D3100 does not. AFS-S lenses have their own focusing motor. So they will work on the D3000 and the D5000 series, as well as the D40. So thank you for that question. And thank you, Sohail, for that answer. All right. Question number two is about a photographer's workflow in Lightroom. The TWIP forum member, Adam in S. God, these names are killing me. I'm just going to say Adam. (laughs) Adam B. He says, I have a laptop and a desktop and my laptop is in the field and my desktop holds my archive and it's my main computer for editing photos, etc. I have Adobe Lightroom installed on both machines. He wants to be able to import photos when he's on assignment and do basic 
editing on the laptop, but he doesn't want to maintain two separate Lightroom archives and doesn't want to have his laptop cluttered with a bunch of photos. How do you handle this? So I have my own thoughts on that. Alex, I want to throw it to you. What do you, what do you think about that? If you've got, uh, you're shooting the field. I don't use Lightroom. You don't use Lightroom? What do you use? I use Aperture. <laughs> yeah, I knew Sarah. I Sarah is like doing you. the fist pump right now, aren't you? <laughs> you are the best. All right, then I will answer that. So the Please. answer to that question is I do the same thing. So I have a, I have a my master Lightroom light or library, which I call my Library of Congress. It's sitting on a Drobo on my desktop that I'm looking at right now, and it's mirrored onto a second Drobo. So I have a little a level of redundancy here. But as I'm out shooting and I import things into my portable, my MacBook Air, I have a library built on that that's specific, that shoot specific. So if I'm out, say, shooting windmills or something, I'll create a library for that shoot, import the photos into that shoot, I can go hang out in Starbucks, edit them, keyword, do all that magic stuff to them, and then take that library, I can plug my MacBook Air into my Mac at home, home and import that library, the entire library, into the Library of Congress. So I'm like checking it in to the Library of Congress. And it comes in with all these keywords, all the crops, all the the adjustments, everything comes right over into the main library. Then I get rid of the library that was local on the laptop. So I don't have to worry about, you know, any sort of fragmentation of my data. So it gets checked in and there that's where it lives. And then conversely, if there's some shoots that I want to play with, so say I did a, sh- a sh- model shoot like five years ago or something, I can go into the Library of Congress and pull that out and create a library from just that shoot and make it portable and stick it on a external drive, plug that drive into my portable and go edit wherever I want to edit it and then check it back in later. So you can do that back and forth with ease and, you know, always only have the, uh, the images that you need available on your laptop. So how do you, how do you do that same thing in Aperture, Sarah? So we basically have, um, a cataloging system that allows you to merge two catalogs. So Basically, what you can do is um, on your laptop, you start your Aperture library there, and then you just take it over um, and merge it in. So the cool thing with Aperture, and I don't know if Lightroom works the same way, is that any work that you've done, you can actually be working on two separate things in in two um, separate libraries on two separate computers, and then you can merge that project together, back together um, and keep both of the things that you were working on. So like I can be working on, um, say the highlight images and my assistant, a studio manager can be working on the rest of the images. And then when we merge the two together, there's no overlap. So it just easily like keeps both of our changes. That's cool. So, yeah. Now, Alex, Alex, what about you? Like what, yeah. what do your people do? Cause I know you're not doing it, right? <laughs> oh no, I do it when I'm on the air, when I'm in like Africa or somewhere I'm shooting, doing a lot of shooting. What I, what I, uh, typically do is I, I, you know, I, I usually don't keep a big library on my, on my laptop. So I have aperture. I import everything, video, um, stills, everything into aperture. I annotate it as I, as I work. Uh, I usually, I try to almost every time I do a shoot, um, I come back and um, I start adding some ratings to all the images mm-hmm. um, because if I don't do it right then, I, I just never get around to it. I shoot too many photos. So, so I um, you know, do all of that, put all that stuff together. Uh, when I get home, I do exactly what, what Sarah was talking about. I just merge it into the, into the, uh, into the larger one. Yep. And, all, and any adjustments I made, any of the annotations, any of that stuff just comes in with it. And then, I, and then I'm just good to go. Now, for both you guys, is that the way that 
that it should work or are you seeing like, oh, it'd be perfect if it only it did this thing? I really like it. Yeah, no, that part, that is just genius. And actually I started, we're, I'm working with a post-production company and they are doing post-production now. Um, I think they're going to actually launch in mid-November, but um, we're actually doing post-production using Apture so I can actually hold on to my Apture library, do the adjustments on the highlights, maybe work on some things, and then they can send me back the adjustments on the rest of the images, um, just like I would do with my studio manager. But um, with us having so many weddings and stuff, we want to outsource some of those some of those weddings to a post-production house. So, Got it. Got it. Cool. Yeah. Well, I hope that answers the question. All right. Um, let's move on to the picks of the week. This is one of my favorite parts of the show. This is where each guest gives their pick and a pick can be software, hardware, gear, workshop, whatever, as long as it's somehow related to photography. Sarah France, I want to throw it to you first. What is your pick of the week? So my pick of the week is actually a book. Um, and it's a book that's designed specifically for boudoir photographers. I don't know if there's any boudoir photographers or people who are interested in getting into boudoir, Mm -hmm. but this book, I got it and it is so, it's so beautiful and inspiring in itself, but it actually takes the whole process from like beginning to end. If you're thinking about shooting boudoir, wanting to know like how to work with a client or, you know, how to charge, like it, it covers everything and and it's just like a coffee table book in itself it's stunning so um it's called exposed redefining boudoir by krista miola uh she's in she's in new york and um there's a link in the show notes but it's definitely it's not um a book that you buy just like a typical book it's like a workshop in a book Hmm. kind of thing and and it's stunning so that's um, awesome. That's great. I highly recommend it. Yeah. And then if you guys also, as a kind of a second pick of the week, if you want to know more about the Aperture Workflow stuff and the post-production house that I am working with, um, it's shoot.edit.com is their website. Uh, and they should be announcing that in mid-November. We should be up and running and ready to um, take orders. They should be. So. Very cool. They're, they're taking Lightroom libraries already and they're adding Aperture yes. to the workflow? Exactly. Yep. You can currently do Lightroom um, and they're adding Aperture to, to the workflow. So it's not just Aperture that they'll be doing. And you can also just send them, you know, RAWs or JPEGs or whatever. They take it all. But um, having the capability of actually sending them an Aperture library and getting that Aperture library back is huge and something I've been really wanting since Aperture 3 came out. So, so, so Sarah, just to spend a couple seconds on that, for the folks that yeah. may not understand what what the service that shoot.edit provides. So it's specifically designed for event or wedding photographers, right? So you go out, you go to a wedding, you snap, 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 put on, you know, you shoot thousands of images, presumably. You throw that library, whether it's Aperture or Lightroom onto a hard drive and you just ship that hard drive to them. You don't do any corrections or whatever. You ship the hard drive to these guys and they go through your library, correct everything and build the album. Is that how it works? Yeah, so um, so basically that that's technically how it works. Some some people don't choose to ship and ship a hard drive. I do, but um, they have an upload tool and they can send you like if you're using Lightroom, I think they send you back the um, small files. What do you call them? Mm-hmm. Um, and they send you the XMLs, XMLs yeah. back to you as soon as they're done. So basically XMLs can be emailed. So you get them back and then you merge them with your images and all of your adjustments are done. So 
they they do basically adjustments on your images and for big shoots and even like our portrait shoots sometimes like we get so bogged down with them especially in the holidays um and towards the end of the year it's so nice for us to take i mean i, I keep like my top 100 favorites in house always mm -hmm. and then everything else we send out to them it's consistent it's good it's clean they send it back i don't have the time to sit in front of a computer and and do all the post-production on a thousand images from a wedding so yeah. it saves us a ton of time and it's so worth so worth the money that just seems again. like that's that's yeah. where a lot of people don't understand the the this sort of maximize or, or leverage that that per, that high-end professional wedding photographers throw out there because it's like you you may shoot a bunch of weddings in one week and there's no way you can go through each individual image and make it a Sarah France perfect sort of thing. So you you are engaging these guys to help you extra like push your look out there. They know what your Sarah France look is and they can they can be your your arms in the field while you're out shooting more stuff, right? Yeah, and a, and a huge piece of it for with the aperture workflow and the reason this is so important is that we with the aperture workflow, you know, same as Lightroom, the the images are attached to the RAWs and it's just an overlay. It's not doing anything to the image. So when we go into Aperture and do our album design, because we do all of our album design in Aperture, when we go in and are doing our album design, we're still then designing from the raw image with some with the adjustments on the image. So um, we don't actually process to a JPEG until that image comes out and is in the album and already designed and is sent to the album company. So it really allows us to continue to get the you know max amount of the the best quality of that image and also continue to adjust it throughout the process because we do another adjustment on the image when we're doing the album design. So um, that's a huge piece, a huge huge thing for us. Um, in being in using Aperture, so awesome. I'm really excited to have that as a as an as an option. And cool. I know you guys don't have that in Lightroom currently, but you know, um. <laughs> we'll get it soon. We'll get it soon. We you know, throw those digs out there. It's okay. I know. It's We're so happy great. with our market I, share right now. It's okay. Yes, no, you're an amazing market share. I'm just trying to adjust the volumes a little bit. You know, what I'm it's okay. All right. Um, I just want to let the the folks listening to the show know that Ron Brakeman had a hot date. So he had to leave the show to go put his suit jacket on and, you know, get ready for his hot date. So he dropped off the line. But Sarah, Alex and myself are still here to close it out. Um, Alex, I want to throw it to you for your pick of the week. What's your pick? So I have uh, I have I have uh, one quick pick of the week, um, which is uh, a I'm, I'm bringing this up again because someone brought it up at one of our shoots uh, the last week. And I realized I hadn't I recommended this a long time ago. And uh, it, it's worth uh, bringing back up again. A lot of us uh, are out shooting and you're trying to figure out how to uh, keep your lenses clean. Yep. And uh, one of the things that someone pointed out was that my lenses are always very, very clean. And uh, uh, one of the things, so you need a blower. And there's a lot of people that make the blowers. Um, mm -hmm. So you want to do that first. You don't want to start touching the lens before you get most of the particulate off. Um, but the thing that I have in a couple different sizes and shapes is the lens pro or lens pen, uh, lens pen pro or whatever so uh, do you guys use these yes i have one yeah um and uh, there's a little one that you can use for your iphone <laughs> and uh and for your uh, point and shoot camera and then they have bigger ones that you can use for larger lenses and it is you know I, as i said the only reason i'm bringing it up is i was kind of surprised that no one had um you know had uh 
had talked about it um, in in quite some time, and uh, and so it is a it's just such a useful. It's seven dollars or fifteen dollars depending on the size, and and uh, it's got a brush on one end and it's got this little squeegee on the other, and, the, and the, you brush it off and you get everything kind of brushed out, and then you squeegee it all off and you really just get nice clean lenses all the time. And uh, I know a lot of people are afraid of touching their lens, and so they tend to leave it a little. I know sometimes they can leave it a little dusty. Uh, you know, you want it, the, the two things that, in my opinion, that you want is a blower and one of these, um, maybe two of these. Um, uh, you want in your jacket, one in your bag. You just want to make sure you keep those lenses clean. And uh, anyway, it's just, to me, it's the best way to, you know, I'm sure that we'll get some viewers that or listeners that tell me that this is the worst thing you should ever you could ever do to your lens. But, um, but I've been quite happy with it. And um, it's, I just thought it was worth uh, repeating uh, because it was... Uh, uh, it was it was something that I've just been using, and there was a bunch of photographers there, and they were they were like, "What is that?" And I was like, "How does a photographer not know that these things exist?" So anyway, this is this is one of the things, one of those things that just should absolutely be in your bag, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, come a on, of, different know? sizes too, because the little one, even even the big one, is great, but the little one's great for getting the little nooks and crannies. It's also the little yep. one's really good for cleaning your the eyepiece on the other side, because <laughs> yeah. the big one won't get in there, and the little one will sit there and squeeze all that stuff off that. That fills up in there, and so it's just a it's a great little pen. And um, I thought I'd go easy on everybody's uh, checkbook today and, and do something that was a little less expensive than I normally. Yeah, the analogy I, throw, I draw for people is like you know you you know you spend what thousands of dollars on this this digital SLR body. It's kind of like buying a Ferrari and driving it around with dirty with a dirty windshield. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like totally. <laughs> clean your windshield. You know, you spent the money on the car. Make sure I mean, you, you get. It makes I you always, get it. Yeah. yeah, I always tell you, like, you can always, for me, it's, it's always like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm in good hands when I'm working with, with shooters. We had like 10 shooters on Saturday shooting, and, and I just feel like I'm in good hands when, when people open up, they put the lens on, you see them carefully blow it off, brush it off, and then squeegee it out. And you see them just doing that before they start shooting. I'm like, okay, so they're, they're paying attention to detail. <laughs> you know, that they're not, they're not, you know, they're not just throwing things on and moving. They're making sure that they're going to get good, good photos. So anyway, that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, my my pick of the week. Thanks, Alex. By the way, my pick of the week is really quick. Um, I had an experience just yesterday with doing some price comparison shopping in the online versus the brick and mortar world. And let me just report what I found. So, Alex, um, by the show, by the time the show airs, we will have done this the Twip Live, which is happening tomorrow, right? So, um, I was looking for HDMI cable to go from my Nikon D seven thousand, which I'm do- using for the shoot, to a, um, you know, just a regular HDMI cable out. You know, that's what I needed. HDMI to larger HDMI. So I started my search and I looked, I called Keeble and Shuckett, which is a camera store here in the Bay Area in Palo Alto. So I gave him a call and I was like, okay, do you have a long HDMI cable to go for, you know, for, for a Nikon camera, D7000? They said, yeah, sure. Come on down. We've got a couple of them in stock. They're $70. Like, wow, $70 for a cable. <laughs> okay, if that's what it costs, maybe you have some electronics or something in there, you know. So I did more homework and I got on Amazon and I searched for an OEM version of the cable, the Nikon HDMI cable, and I found it for, are you waiting? Wait for it. on Amazon. You know, only the only problem was it wasn't on Amazon Prime. So if I ordered it, it would take two or three days to get here, you know, and I needed it in the next day or so. So my third option was, okay, I'm like, okay, you can't, you can't, 
go, you know, and call it done without having a third check. So I checked with, uh, with Calumet Photographic, which is why I was there, as I mentioned earlier. Went to Calumet Photographic in San Francisco, and they had one for 20 bucks. You know, so it was kind of a happy medium. So still exponentially more expensive than just ordering it with one click buying on Amazon. But, you know, so my, the, the rule or the tip from this is check Amazon first. If you don't, if you need a cable, go to Amazon. In fact, I needed a mini USB cable because we're going to do some tethered shooting. The mini USB to USB for a six foot mini USB to USB cable from Amazon 79 cents I got it for 79 cents with free shipping <laughs> so, so I would just you know that's my tip you know if you if you need a cable and you can wait two or three days for it check Amazon first of course your quality and mileage may, may vary but 79 cents come on you can't you can't beat that yeah the one thing the one thing I will say is I'm really glad you didn't spend too much because we are like we, we are flush with those cables so um so it's um but I'm glad you went out and got one for yourself uh, yeah um the uh the one thing you want to be careful of with the Amazon stuff is making sure that you check the rating. Uh, so I, mm. I bought some Amazon uh, HDMI cables and was, you know, because I was uh, upset about what I paid at Staples. Yeah. And, um, and so anyway, so that's, that's good. Um, the main thing is, you, as I said, you want to make sure that you check it because I couldn't get it to work. Like I couldn't get it to, hmm. um, to work out. And it turned out that the issue um, specifically was with that it was an older version of HDMI. And, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the check sum that, that happens with the Apple TV, too, to make sure you can play copywritten material wouldn't work with my TV connected to that. So you just want to kind of um, – it, it, there are plenty of cables. I, I could have ordered one from Amazon that did that. But just remember that they're all getting kind of bunched up together. And with the Amazon ones, you know, with the, when you buy $70, they're generally just giving you the fastest one there, generally. Yep. Uh, when you buy the Amazon ones, you just, it's cheaper, and you just need to pay a little bit more attention. <laughs> so, right, right. so that's all. Just make sure you pay attention. It is where we, you know, um, we, get, we have cables. I'm just looking. The, the guys buy them at, at, at another, another uh, site that sells lots of cables, too. But, um, but the, uh, uh, the Amazon is where I buy a lot of my cables. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, the last, the last thing I bought from Amazon, um, or the last thing before this this cable was a I was looking for a charging adapter because you know with with iOS 5 you don't need you can do wireless tethering or you not wireless tethering but you can do wireless syncing to your Mac so you don't need to physically plug a USB cable into your Mac and plug it into your iPhone anymore so I figured oh it's awesome so now I just need to distribute like charging stations around the house and I can just plug in and it'll automatically sync. So, but turns out that Apple's hardware is very expensive. You know, it's like 40 bucks for just a cable and a dock or whatever. So I go on Amazon again, you know, being the cheap guy, I go on there and I found a, uh, charging adapter with two USB ports on it. So you can charge two devices simultaneously. So presumably an iPad and an iPhone at the same time, this adapter was under a dollar. <laughs> so I ordered three of them. I haven't tried them out yet, but I will report that on the next show. But they came and they're fine. They look great. You know, we'll see if they work and if they don't fry my hardware. But it, uh, you know, I mean, that stuff is amazing that you can get that kind of thing. Those kind of devices and accessories for so cheap on Amazon. So I would definitely do your do your homework before you buy anything. Yeah, and the one I was looking for was the uh, uh, Cables to Go is another another site you can look at. Cables just, to Go. Okay, it's just it's like the geeky every kind of cable that you could think of uh, available. I would you know go to Amazon, but also Cables to Go is where a lot of the guys that I know that that build like broadcast studios and stuff. 
and are looking for um, bulk stuff and, and lots of stuff that's a little less expensive. Uh, I know a lot of them go here to go there to, to get awesome. stuff. All right. Excellent. Well, there's our pick, picks of the week. But looks like we're at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Sarah France, where can people go to find out more about what you're working on? Um, you can always go to my website, sarahfrance.com. Um, you can access my blog from there. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, of course. And um, you can also find my bags at gobebags.com, G-O-B-E-E, bags.com, and at autorama.com. Awesome. And you're at Photo Plus right now. What do you, what do you, like, when's your talk? Is it this weekend or in the next couple of days? So I'm at the Sony booth uh, twice a day, every day. So pretty much in the middle of the day, if you come around, I'll probably be either on the beauty stage shooting or on the presentation stage talking about what I was shooting. Okay. Well, this this show yeah. will go live on Friday. So if you're Perfect. so if you're there after Friday, or after you hear the show, please go by and say hello to the wonderful and beautiful Sarah France. Please do. I'll be there on Saturday until about three. Okay. And since Ron isn't here, I'm going to give his pick. His pick of the week is thisweekinphoto.com. So <laughs> head nice. over to thisweekinphoto.com, courtesy of Ron Brinkman. And Alex, what's your pick of the week? I already did a pick of the week. Or I'm sorry. Where, I'm just losing my brain. Where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, you, you can go to, uh, no, just follow me on the Twitters, Alex Lindsay, all one word. You can also follow PixelCore. Um, so if you just want to know what the PixelCore is doing, broadcasts and things that we're uploading and so on and so forth, just follow PixelCore. That's C-O-R-P-S, uh, S on the, on the end. Follow PixelCore, and um, that's kind of the serious, no, no, uh, no frills. Uh, this is what we're doing. We got a new yeah. video up, or we got something else. If you want to have the more flowery version, um, that is mixed with, uh, you know, all kinds of goofy stuff that's happening at home, and so on and so forth, and um, you know, random musings, uh, then uh, go ahead and follow me uh, at your own risk. Uh, it's Alex Lindsay, uh, <laughs> all one word. And uh, remember that at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard, almost every week. Uh, we're doing live broadcasts uh, this week. You're going to miss it when we post this because we had already done it. But Frederick's going to be in the office uh, doing a live shoot with a model. And uh, we're going to be broadcasting that live. Sorry you missed it. Uh, but we will post the video on YouTube. So take a look for that. And, of course, we'll tell you about that if you follow the PixScore on Twitter. Um, and also, uh, but we'll be doing that. It's different every week. It's not just photography. Sometimes yep. it's video production. Sometimes it's visual effects. Sometimes it's um, uh, video editing. But every Thursday, uh, you know, we do something out of the studio. So uh, definitely come and join us. You can ask questions. We'll answer them while we're on the set. Uh, so you can really interact with all of that. So I um, hope to see you there. Perfect. Hey, Alex, real quick before we sign off here, like there's been a ton of new listeners coming into This Week in Photo, and a lot of them may not be aware of what the Pixel Core is and what you guys do. What's your, what's your mission statement? Sure. You know, the, well, the, the Pixel Core is really a guild for content creators. So the idea is how do we train, organize, and prepare people to work in this industry? And we look at the industry very holistically. I mean, it used to be you'd think of web or TV or film. All of that's merging. Uh, you can post now 4K videos to YouTube. So there's no, there's no real separation. So how do we create, uh, you know, the next generation of artists that can, that can do that and do it and, and collaborate with each other all over the world? And so um, that's what we work on. Very cool. All right. 
Thanks, Alex. And to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can just head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to all of our online presences. Also, please support the show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. We would love that. And we read every single one of those. And speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows immediately as they're released. As soon as they hit the feed, they show up in the app. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. 